You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Imagine a world where music has been entirely forgotten. Very few instruments still exist, and the ones that do, they've been put in storage and are collecting dust. Musicians have started to die off one by one, and the ones that are left, well, they don't really remember how to play. And each person is walking along in their life without any musical skip in their step, because there's no more tunes to hum. The earth spins on a melodyless axis, but somewhere. Inside a darkened, candle-lit study sits a composer. He's leaning intently over his piano. He's got papers strewn around him. He's feverishly writing down line after line on a new sheet. This composer, he's an old man. He's got this long, silver, stringy beard. His clothes are a little unkempt. He's got thinning hair up top, but he's old enough to remember what music sounds like. He's had notes bouncing back and forth between his ears. He's had notes that have sunk deep within his soul. And now he's writing these notes down. He's poured his blood, sweat, and tears for years into this piece. And he finally has it. The greatest concerto ever composed. See, this piece, it's going to bring music back for good. People are going to hear it, and the joy of song will rise up in them again. They'll remember what it was like. They'll recall what music sounded like. And then they'll start to go into their lives. They'll be inspired by this level of creativity. They'll teach their kids how to play. They'll dust off their instruments and learn themselves. This is music for a musicless world. But there's one problem for the composer. How's he going to get it to the world? He's going to have to dust off all of those instruments. The violins and the violas, the clarinets, the oboes, the trumpets, the trombones, the drums, the pianos, the cymbals. Everything will need to be restored. But not just the instruments, the musicians, right? They'll need to be retaught how to play the music. They'll need to be shown the music in front of them and learn how to fall in love with the melody again. And that's just the the music and the musicians, right? They're going to need somewhere to play, a concert hall. So you architects and engineers, you're going to be needed. Janitors, they're going to be needed to clean the space, right? So people can show up, maintain it. You're going to need a web developer to design a website so that uh, you can track who's coming in, how many people can fit in the room, how many shows we need. You're going to need uh, printing presses and ink to make sure the music can get printed out for people. You're going to need lighting and staging specialists. The list goes on and on. If this concerto is going to get to the world, it's going to take a team effort. And to be clear, the concerto still exists, whether those people get involved or not. Right? The music is there. It's already been made, and it's beautiful. But in order for that music to start to warm the hearts of the world, it needs to get to the world. See, a melody is only joyous to the world if it can get there. We're starting a new sermon series here at the Spring Midtown called Christ's Vision for the Church. We're reading the book of Ephesians together. And from Ephesians, we actually learn something not dissimilar to the story of the composer and the concerto. Namely, first, that glorious, joyful music has entered the world. Music that brings healing, from brokenness, music that brings peace across worldly divisions, music that brings reconciliation between humans and God. But we also learn from Ephesians that there's an orchestra. It's called the church. 
See, we as the church, we're the people who help get this music into the world so that real peace and real healing and real reconciliation can come. And so we're going to be spending the next few weeks in this series learning about that music and how we might be able to step in and play it here at the Spring Midtown. If you have a Bible, uh, turn in it with me to Ephesians. It's near the back of your Bible. I'll be reading from chapter 1, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7. I'll be reading 7 through 10 and then skipping forward to verses 17 through 23, if you're following along. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Now verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This book that we're reading, it's actually a letter Most scholars agree it was written by a guy named Paul. Paul lived back in the first century. He was a Pharisee, which was a Jewish religious leader back in that day. He knew the Hebrew scriptures, which is our Old Testament, like the back of his hand. He had them memorized, more than likely. And Paul became a Christian after a radical experience with Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of what all of these scriptures uh, were talking about, the thing that all of these scriptures were pointing to. And so he went from killing Christians persecuting Christians to becoming one of them. And he, amongst a team of other people, men and women, changed the ancient world. They changed the world for good by communicating the good news of Jesus, by being people who heal others, by being people who bring peace and reconciliation. And Paul, in this passage, he's writing this likely to a group of churches. He sent this out to a few different places. He's talking to the church in general. And here he does a couple things. First, he talks about what the gospel music is, what the gospel looks like. And then he talks about how the gospel actually starts to work in our lives. And he does that using a couple different literary devices. So I'm going to talk about both of those uh, because I think it's helpful to unpack. So the first is a poem. We find that he's writing poetry in verses 7 through 10. And the second is a prayer that he writes, which is hopeful for what the church will become after learning the truth in this poem. So let's start with the poem. The poem actually runs from verses 3 all the way through 14. We read 7 through 10 together. That's just a little chunk. This is one long sentence in Greek. It's this flowing, uh, joyful song that Paul is writing. And it actually mirrors uh, an Old Testament prayer structure called a beracha. You guys can go ahead and try to say it if you want. Beracha. You got to get it like in the back of your throat. Right? Beracha. 
We can work on it together. I'll help you figure it out. <laughs> you, uh, you don't have to know how to pronounce beracha to know what it is, to know how it serves its purpose. The point in a beracha is to orient the people of God around a singular truth, a truth about God and how that truth actually leaks into their day-to-day -day lives, how it actually changes their lives. And so what we learn just from the structure of what Paul is doing, before we even talk about the message, we're learning that Paul, when he has the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, does it through poetry, through song. It's not a long, dry theological treatise. Jesus' arrival into the world, it's not religious dogma that's meant to bore the masses. It's not uh, supposed to be preached amongst empty and dry, dusty church pews in a wooden manner. It's a poem. It's a song that overflows from Paul in his deepest reaches and that rings in the ears of his listeners. It reminds me, actually, of a movie, which shouldn't surprise anyone in this room who knows who I am. I love movies, right? Of course, Clint's reminded of a movie by everything, so that makes sense. The movie's La La Land. Anybody seen La La Land? Nice. Okay, some nods. It, it proved divisive on the internet after uh, it came out, maybe the ending a little bit. There was a weird Oscar fiasco with it, but I'm glad people like La La Land. Oh, I got a no from, from somebody in the corner. Fair enough. <laughs> well, independent of your thoughts on the movie, the opening scene is really interesting. Uh, it starts with this black screen, and it fades into a traffic jam on an L.A. freeway, which is one of the most accurate real-world things that you could depict, right? Traffic jams in L.A., that's a thing. Anybody who's lived in L.A. knows this is how life goes. And this traffic jam, it starts to pan down for 20, 30 seconds. They've got people in their cars. It's clearly hot. Some people listen to the radios, but it seems like a bummer of a situation. And then it gets to one woman who's wearing this bright yellow dress, and she's singing in her car. And then she starts to sing a little louder. And then suddenly, she jumps out of her car and starts dancing in the middle of the freeway. And then that inspires other. Hundreds of people start pouring out, like from a zombie movie. Like from every corner, there's people pouring out to sing and dance alongside her. It's absurd. There's guys doing parkour across hoods and across roofs. There's a skateboarder. No idea where he came from. Why is he on the freeway? Dangerous. You shouldn't be here. Why is there a skateboarder? One dude jumps up on the back of the truck. He lifts up the gate of the truck. And behold, there's a band ready to play. <laughs> that truck's not refrigerated. Like how there's no AC. How are they not pouring sweat, right? It makes no sense. It's absurd. And they're ready to play. They're playing along with the dancing that's going on. It's absurd. And even if you haven't seen La La Land, you kind of know that's something that happens in musicals from time to time. There's like a normal thing, and all of a sudden someone starts dancing and singing. And it seems silly at first, until you find out why musicals use that kind of construct in the movies. They use that in order to communicate a truth that's kind of under the surface. They use it to get at what a character is feeling or what is going on uh, thematically under the surface of the narrative. It teaches you well, a truth that might be hidden under the reality. And in La La Land, what you find out is that those people who are stuck in the traffic jam aren't seeing the traffic jam because the song is joyful. The song is all about how they as artists are in exactly the place they want to be because they get to pursue their dreams. And so they don't see a traffic jam. They see something else. They're living with a fundamentally different vision of the world. That's what that song in La La Land does. That's what musicals sometimes get to do for us. They give us insight into what's going on underneath the surface. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's uh, singing, he's writing this poetry to communicate something that's gone on despite what the world might look like. Though the world might look like a traffic jam, there's something else that's happened. And so the question for us is, well, 
what is Paul saying has happened, right? What's the story that Paul is talking about? And in order to get that story, we've actually got to return to what the Jewish scriptures said, because that's what Paul had, that's what we have today. And when you start back in Genesis 1, you find out that God created everything harmoniously, to work in harmony together. Each thing exists to play its own part. The Hebrew idea is shalom, this peace that exists among all things. I've actually got a graphic because I'm a nerd and like graphics here. Humans were made for right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with the world. That's what Genesis teaches us. We were made for this holistic mode of living. That was the glorious music that God made at the beginning. But something happened. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn about it. And the rest of the Old Testament is all about what has happened, namely that humans have decided they want to play their own music. They don't like the tune that they were given. And so they turn away from God, they harm one another, and they neglect creation. The very harmony that we were made for has been disrupted because we've chosen to play other music. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about sin or humans being sinners. Fundamentally, we as humans have neglected the vocation, the thing that we've been made for. And that affects every part of the cosmos. And I think that's an important distinction because a lot of times in our culture, the words sin or sinner get thrown around and I think they're often misunderstood. See, sin or sinner doesn't connote a moral hierarchy. It's not a totem pole. It's not an ethical rat race that we move up and down based on how we perform. That would be crippling. In fact, it is crippling for many people in the world today. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Sin instead connotes a state of being, a condition, a sort of sickness that we as humans have that we can't escape no matter how much good we do. It's a resulting state of the world that comes from that sickness. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his book, The Contemplative Pastor. He says, the word sinner is not a word that places humans somewhere on a continuum, ranging from angel to ape, assessing them as relatively good or bad. It designates humans in relation to God and sees them separated from God. Sinner means something is awry between humans and God. And so sin is a condition that we all experience. And when we realize that that's the definition of sin or being a sinner, all of a sudden we look around the world and we're like, well, that makes sense, right? It's something that most of us either know intuitively or have experienced to some degree. The story the Bible details isn't just a story, it's our story. We live it every day. See, we all know the ways that humans tend to treat each other when they disagree with them, right? We've been through two of the most divisive elections in uh, recent memory, right? And you've got those corrupt liberals and those terrible conservatives and everyone's spewing venom at each other. Social media exacerbates it, right? If you go, if you go on Twitter, you gotta be careful. If you go on Facebook, you gotta be careful because you might just get hounded by a mob on either side. It happens. This is a condition that humans live with. We all know how the poor and needy are often overlooked in our society. We see them on the street corners all the time. We have not one, but two islands of garbage floating in the Pacific Ocean. We call them the East Pacific Garbage Patch and the West Pacific Garbage Patch because we need to balance things out. Right? We know that creation is being neglected all the time around us. In the last 120 years, we've fought two wars, two wars, that were so comprehensive and so violent and so far-reaching that we had to call them world wars. This is a condition that's so far-reaching, it's global. And since that second world war, everyone has been obsessed with the fact that at the touch of a button, it could all end. We're terrified. 
of this brokenness that exists all around us, sin and sinfulness. It's everywhere. Death and decay, it's everywhere. But those also aren't just things that are out there. They're things that are in here. They're things like wrath that we harbor, or jealousy, or envy, or lust, covetousness, longing after the things of other people, wishing for the downfall of others around us. See, there's a gap between who we are, who we experience ourselves to be today, and who we're made to be. There's this gap that all of us experience to some degree. William Barclay, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, puts it this way. He says, man is divided by man, or from man, class from class, nation from nation, ideology from ideology. And what is true of the world of outer nature is true of human nature. In every human, there is a tension. Every human is a walking civil war, torn between the desire for good and the desire for evil. They hate their sins and love them at one and the same time. That's the story of our world. But that's not the end of the story. See, Paul is writing here because something else has happened. Something else has broken into that corrupted world of death and decay. The great composer is not going to let that sort of disharmony rule the day. And so he's written a new song, one in which all of us who perpetuate this sort of brokenness in the world can all of a sudden start to play the music that we were made to play. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the music we were made to play. And that new music gets talked about through poetry. Paul says in verses 7 through 10 that in Christ we have redemption. And the word redemption there, it's another kind of Christianese word that's thrown around. The verb in Greek means to ransom. In Paul's day, it would have referred to someone who uh, was freed from slavery, someone who was ripped out of a prison, someone who was in bondage in some way by oppressive powers who has been freed. I think that language seems particularly fitting on the weekend of a national holiday called Juneteenth, right, where we get to celebrate the freedom, the emancipation that people in bondage once had in this country. Yesterday, there were celebrations all over Phoenix to remember the joy that comes from emancipation, from freedom, from redemption. And Paul's song is using language here that indicates the same sort of thing is happening for everyone in Christ. All of us have been held in bondage by the oppressive powers of sin and death, and Christ has broken the chains of that bondage. It's a sort of emancipation proclamation for all of humanity. That's what Paul is saying here. And that happens in two distinct ways. This emancipation from sin and death happens in two distinct ways. First, Paul mentions that it happens for us individually. Paul says that this work of Jesus Christ has given us forgiveness from our sins, from our trespasses. And that inner, individual uh, forgiveness, that's the starting point of the gospel message, always. Because regardless of how broken we think other people might be, we are most aware of our own brokenness. I know what's going on in my head and my heart, and I can tell you it's not always great, right? I know the ways that I've contributed to this. There's a, a famous uh, theologian and writer named G.K. Chesterton who lived around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. I think he had the best answer for this. Somebody asked him, what's wrong with the world? And his response was, I am. I'm wrong with the world, right? We have to start with us. It's the only starting point for any healing that can actually happen in the world. And so what we learn is that playing the music we were made for the music of that original shalom creation, it starts with acknowledging the ways that we have failed to play it in our own lives. 
But we find that in Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross, that when we acknowledge that and when we turn back to him and long to live the life that he has for us, we have forgiveness, always. We have grace, always, in Christ. Christ's death returns us to unity with God. Nice. That was a good, that was a, Amanda, killing it on the slides. That was perfect. Yeah. But the reality is, there's still other parts of the cosmos that need to be healed, right? There's a lot of churches in the West, especially, who like to talk about uh, healing and redemption only on an individual level. You've punched your ticket to heaven, you're good to go, right? You wipe your hands off and then we're set. But the world's still broken. That shalom is not yet fixed. Something needs to be done about our relationships with others and our relationship with creation. And so that's why Paul gets at the cosmic gospel here as well. Notice in verse 10, he says, all things are gathered up in Christ. And the nice thing about the word all is it means all. There's, there's nothing that's out of the reach of Christ. There's nothing that Jesus isn't redeeming and restoring. And it's always Jesus's initiative that does this here. It's always Christ's moving into the world, moving through his body that starts to do this redeeming and restoring work. And all of a sudden, we get shalom restored. All things are working. This means that Jesus arrives to correct not only our individual lives, but also all of the systems and institutions that inflict pain and suffering and sin in the world. And so if you've come into this room and you're someone who's longing for justice for those who have been oppressed, Jesus brings it. That's what the message of the gospel is. If you desire a healed planet, Jesus is the medicine. If you want the hungry to be filled and the prideful to be pulled from their thrones, Jesus arrives as a fulfillment of those longings. He's the one who brings the full cosmos back into shape. This is comprehensive redemption and restoration. And if you're someone in this room right now that knows your life isn't the way that it should be, that you haven't been playing the music that you were designed to play, this is good news because it's not dependent on you. You don't have to get it right on a moral spectrum. All you have to do is turn back to Jesus. Paul, in this chapter, says, in Christ, nine times. Nine times in 23 verses. So it's like every other verse. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It all happens in Jesus. It's not dependent on you to get right. And that's what he means when he talks about the grace that God has lavished upon us. This new life that we receive, this redemption of all things, it's a gift from God. See, world history, if we look back over thousands of years, it's been a project of humans trying to fix things themselves. And they do it a variety of ways, right? They try to fix themselves through religion. And so they, they act a certain way, and they just say, look, if you behave this way, if you change your actions enough, then things will start to heal. Sometimes it's through political or social systems, right? If you just buy into this system, if we all just do this together, then it will be fixed, right? All of these humanly created things, we start to put all of this stock into to say, that's going to fix the problem. But that's like trying to lift ourselves out of quicksand. It doesn't work. We need a hand from someone who's standing on solid ground, and Jesus gives us that hand. And so we learn that only, only in ending my drive, my striving for life, can I actually receive the life that God has for me? Only in ending my attempts at grasping goodness and life on my terms can I actually obtain true goodness and life. 
Only in dying to myself, as Jesus says, can I live in him. And most of us live our lives like this, with our hands closed, tightly grasped around something that we think will solve our problems. And so we just get a little bit more wealth, or we get the relationship that we want, or we get the career, we get the family, we get whatever thing that we think will give us life. And what we find, as the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says, is when we grasp that thing, it slips through our fingers like vapor, like air. And so some of us start to respond by grasping at other things, right? And so we say, we just need a little bit more. We need this thing. This thing will solve it. That's human history. That's what we've done. And you notice doing this, it's really hard to play music. (laughs) Can't really play guitar when your fingers are like this. But the gospel says, open your hands. Open your hands and receive what Jesus has done for you. Enough of the striving. Enough of the grasping and all the things that end up empty for you. Receive what Jesus has brought into the world by turning back to him, by acknowledging the ways that we've messed up and turning back to him so that he can start to heal us. And so that's the poem of good news that Paul has here. And if you've heard that message before, let it sink in again. Because we can go through our days and start to slip back into that old way of living, that old way of striving uh, to get the things to obtain life. And if you haven't heard that message before, hear an invitation from Jesus. He's inviting you to a life that's free of striving, that's free of the pitfalls of human history, which have resulted in all of this brokenness. He's inviting you to true life. And that's true now. You can ask around this room for Christians, right? If we've been following Jesus for any length of time, we can tell you the laundry list of things that he's already redeeming and restoring, the ways that he's healing us now. But that also culminates at the end of time. That's why we believe in a thing called heaven, arriving to earth. We learn that the tears that we cry now will be wiped away. We learn that the blind will see and that the lame will walk. We learn that the poor and needy will be cared for, that the broken will be healed. And we learn that all of our sin will be wiped away. That's the message of the gospel here. And now, after poetically expressing that message in song, Paul encourages us to start to live it out. He shifts to a prayer that starts in verse 17. And I like the language he uses in verse 18. He encourages our hearts to be enlightened, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to what Jesus has done in the world and what he continues to do. For us to start to see things differently, for us to look at a traffic jam and not see a traffic jam anymore. This is a prayer for a sort of transformed imagination, a transformed way of seeing and living. Not through the eyes of the world, not through the headlines that will always bombard you. Always bombard you. We don't see the world through the lens of the world. We see the world through the lens of Christ. We see the world with this message of redemption and restoration guiding us. I want to tell you guys a story uh, about a guy named Greg. Greg was a Catholic priest. Uh, He finished his his training in the late 1980s, and he was assigned, despite uh, his desire not to be in an urban context, Uh, they assigned him to East L.A. His church was located right between two rival gang communities. And his neighborhood, in particular, had the highest concentration of gang activity in the country. Crazy in East L.A., right? And again, those of you that have lived in L.A., I don't know why I'm always harping on L.A. today. Funny. L.A. is a fine city. That's okay. But in this particular particular place, the brokenness of, of humanity, the ways that we've treated one another, it's on obvious display. 
And when the world looks at that sort of neighborhood, they see violence. They see death. They see people who are irredeemable. But Greg didn't see that. Greg saw something different. Greg saw potential for redemption. He didn't see danger. Because death doesn't have a hold on Greg. Death doesn't have a hold on the world anymore. And where the world wanted to look at this neighborhood and say, lock those people up, they're terrible. Greg said, I want to free them from their chains. I want to do the opposite. Because I see redemption and restoration bursting forth from this neighborhood. So the church started a job training program. And it went really well. So the church started a bakery. And the bakery went really well. They were able to employ a lot of these former gang members. And then the church started a daycare to care for the families and kids of these gang members. Decades later, there's this thing now called Homeboy Industries, which serves thousands of former gang members across the country. The very people who the world would say, those people are corrupt and need to be pushed away. Greg went to them and said, no, we're going to seek healing together. And I'm going to be with you in it. And we'll figure it out. But we'll entrust ourselves to Jesus because I know that that's what he does. That's what a transformed imagination looks like. That's what it looks like to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, as Paul says here. And so Paul's prayer should make all of us in this room ask, what do the eyes of our hearts see when they look at the world? What do we see? Do we look around and see headlines that say the world's falling apart? And is our initial instinct to gather as much as we can for us and our tribe just to survive till doomsday? Is our instinct at seeing the world falling apart just to try to get as comfortable, to create as easy a life as we can? Or do we have a different way of seeing the world? Do we see a world that's being redeemed and restored by Jesus every day? Do we see a world where we can give ourselves away so that others can have life? Do we see a world in which death no longer reigns, in which life reigns? Paul's prayer is that we'd start to see things differently, that our hearts would be transformed. And the people that do this, the people that start to see things differently, they're called the church. You're sitting in it right now. These are the people who see things differently. What we learn here is that redemption and restoration in Jesus starts to change the world through the church. That's what Paul's saying in verses 20 through 23 here. And that's what our series is going to focus on. How the church is this group of people that live with a different understanding of God, a different understanding of themselves, and a different understanding of the world. And I know, for many people in this room, that the church has not always been that. I know that many people sitting in this room have seen the church not be particularly musically inclined, we'll say. Be people who haven't perpetuated the redemption and restoration, and in some cases have done the opposite. I know some people who are like, the church is weird. I don't understand it, right? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Can you help make sense of it? And Paul is making it quite clear here. If the church is not bringing about the redemption of individuals and of all things, then it isn't being the church. If the church doesn't see the world through redemptive and restorative lens, then it's not being the church. If the church isn't an extension of Jesus' love for the least of these in society, then it's not being the church. If it doesn't care for those who are hurt or oppressed, then it's not being the church. If it isn't bringing the good news of forgiveness and grace to a world that needs it, it's not being the church. He uses an analogy here. He says that Christ is the head and the church is the body. That the redemption and restoration that Jesus brings is connected to this church and he works through the body. And many times the church decapitates itself and it falls limp 
on the ground because it's disconnected from this story. If the church doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not being the church. But I look around this room and I see the church. This little kingdom of heaven outpost called the Spring Midtown, I see redemption and restoration bursting forth from this place all the time. And I can confidently say that because I know you people. I've lived life with you over the last couple years. That's why Emily and I are so excited for this next season here at Midtown. I've seen the crippling chains of sin broken in your lives. I've seen relationships restored in your lives. I've seen trauma healed in your lives. I've seen the women who society forgets about, the widows, those below the poverty line, single moms. I've seen those women served by this community. I've seen beds built for kids who don't have beds to sleep in. I've seen lunches made for kids who don't have lunches. I've seen all of that happening here. This is the church. It's the body of Christ's redemption and restoration in the world. And I really just long for this next season to keep being that. It was this beautiful picture last week as we prayed and gathered around Luke. There were tears shed, but they weren't tears of death. They weren't tears of something ending. They were tears that said, oh, this is beautiful. There's so much beauty in this group of people who commit themselves to this redemptive and restorative lens. And so let's, let's keep listening to the music together. Let's keep playing it together because we're the orchestra. Let's play this life-altering, paradigm-flipping song in a world that's longing for it. Let's play it amidst our neighbors and our friends, our family members and our coworkers. Let's play it amidst each other to encourage one another in this work. Because that's what the church is. That's what we're called to be. We're the body. We're the orchestra. Playing the music of the great composer. So friends, keep picking up your instruments. We've got a song to play. Would you pray with me?